new to City Church in the wake of the hashtag MeToo movement and the revelations of how many powerful men in Hollywood and in other places, men like Harvey Weinstein, Woody Allen, and others, revelation about how they've used their power to use and abuse and humiliate women. We began a new series last week called Wonder Woman from the book of Esther because I wanted you to see how God raises up a woman to do something wondrous for her people. And if you don't mind this morning, I just want to dive right into the passage because I think there's so much here that I want you to see. Please, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me in it to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2 in the Old Testament. Now, quickly as a review, the events in Esther take place during the exile of the Jewish people. And in the misogynistic culture, much like our culture, in the misogynistic culture of ancient Persia, the king, Xerxes, has banished his queen from his presence for disobeying his command to show off her beauty in front of a bunch of men that he wanted to impress. Banished her for that. So there's no queen in Persia now, which sets the stage for the rest of the book. Now what I'm going to do in the next few moments is I'm going to, first I'm going to work through the passage... And then I want to make a few points that I think are very important for you to walk away with this morning. Let's pick up now at verse 1 of chapter 2. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Now, this verse doesn't tell us the exact time that Xerxes remembered Vashti, but we learn at the end of chapter 2 that it's actually been four years. Four years have transpired since he banished her. And we know from history that it was during this four-year period that Xerxes had gone off to battle in the hopes of conquering the Greeks, but he and his armies got whipped. And so coming back home from battle, defeated, with his tail between his legs, probably wanting a little comfort and love and reassurance from his wife, he remembers that she's not going to be there. And what seemed like a great idea when he was drunk and angry suddenly doesn't seem like a good idea to him anymore. That big old palace gets awfully lonely without a queen in it. His advisors realize that they have a major problem. The king's sadness could easily turn to anger at them very quickly because they're the ones who advised him to get rid of her. And remember, that's one of the things that we learned about Xerxes uh, last week is that he's impulsive and he's an angry man. And so these attendants, they come up with a plan. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all of these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now again, you can see the misogynistic culture of ancient Persia here. Now, I don't want you to get the impression in any way, shape, or form that this is somehow some beautiful romantic story in which the handsome king's attendants go on a search for his Cinderella. That isn't what this is about at all. That's not the brutal world in which the Bible was... Set. This isn't a Sunday school flannel graph story. This is about sex and cruelty and brutality and narcissism and misogyny run amok. This is sex trafficking, really. 
if you think about it. King's men go out and round up all the beautiful young women that they can find in the kingdom. I don't know how many there would have been, 50, 100, 200, who knows? They'll each be ripped from the arms of their families, brought in, buttered up, dressed up like a Thanksgiving turkey, and then forced to sleep with the king. There's nothing romantic about this at all. Read from verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Skip down, if you will, now to verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Skip down, if you will, to the last part of verse 8. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So here we are finally, over a chapter uh, into the book of Esther, that we finally meet the namesake of the book, an adopted Jewish girl who is apparently very beautiful. But here's the problem. She's Jewish. That's That's the problem. And the king would undoubtedly prefer to make a Persian girl queen instead of a Jewish girl. But the text tells us in verse 10, look at this, it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, that's her uncle, Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now why? Why had Mordecai forbidden her to mention to anyone that she was Jewish? Well, the answer is, it was a matter of life and death, right? The Jews have always been the most despised people throughout history. All the way from Pharaoh's command to kill all of the male babies so as to slowly commit ethnic cleansing to Hitler's murder of over 6 million Jews in World War II, they have been the most despised people throughout human history. And you'll see that here too in the book of Esther in the coming weeks. This is This, you see, it's a life or death issue. That's why Mordecai says, don't tell them that you're Jewish. Because if they find out, there's a good chance she'll be killed. Mordecai says, look, keep that hidden. Now look, I want you to know that commentators are divided about whether Mordecai and Esther were right in the way that they handled this or not. Some would say, some commentators will say that it was wrong for Esther to even be in this situation, that she should have revealed her nationality up front, come what may. I think it's a lot easier to write that in a commentary thousands of years later than it probably was for Esther in the moment, right? Other commentators would say that this was a wise, strategic, and loving move on Mordecai's part. Later in chapter 3, Mordecai himself seems not to be very bashful at all about telling people that he's Jewish. He just says it right out. Frankly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure who's right, who's wrong on this. Let me just make this this one observation. There's there's an interesting parallel here between Esther's story and the story of Moses. I don't know if any of you remember the story of Moses. Moses' mother places him in a basket in a stream because Pharaoh had issued an edict that every male Jewish child born should be killed. Pharaoh's Pharaoh's daughter discovers him, and she raises him in her own home as an Egyptian child, even though Moses wasn't an Egyptian. And later, Moses becomes the deliverer in his people. 
And in, in that story, there's never even a hint of condemnation for hiding his nationality. So I lean here toward the notion that this was a wise and strategic move on Mordecai's part because of his love for his adopted daughter and that he didn't want her to needlessly lose her life. But either way, either way, if there's anything that we learn about God in the Scriptures, it's that he can redeem ever, uh, even the sinful choices of broken human beings and he can use those very sinful choices to bring about his plan. It's like he's over everything, even the sinful terrible choices that we make. And if Mordecai and Esther are guilty here, it's even a greater commentary on the power and the grace of God because, well, let me show you. In the interest of of time, just skip down to verse 16. Would you do that? Skip down to verse 16. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Out of all of the women in Persia, an orphaned Jewish girl, not a Persian girl, is chosen to be the queen. And I don't want to give away the story yet, but this will become very important later in the crisis that the Jewish people are about to experience. Here's the question I think is very interesting to think about for a moment. Why was Esther chosen? Of all of the women, why Esther? Why a Jewish girl, not a Persian girl? Of course, the king didn't know that. We know it. Why was she chosen? I want you to notice something. We're two chapters into this book, and there's been no mention of God at all in this book. In fact, his name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. In fact, there aren't even any miracles in this book. No parting of the seas, no water turning into wine, no walking on water, nothing. In fact, you could even say that God is conspicuously absent in this book. So, was it mere coincidence that Esther won the heart of the king? Or was there something else, or someone else? behind it. I want to use the remaining moments here to make a few points that I think are very important for you to walk away with this morning. They have to do with that question. Here's the first one. The more subtle God gets, the more powerful He seems. The more subtle God gets, the more powerful He seems. Let me explain that. You You might find this odd, but one of the reasons that Esther is my favorite book in the Bible is that it resembles my own life in some ways more than the books where God does big, conspicuous miracles. Because here's the thing, and you you might be disappointed in me when you hear this, but I just don't see many clear, conspicuous miracles happen in my life. You're disappointed? You feel gypped? Like you got the worst pastor ever? Like other pastors see miracles all the time. Some of them can make miracles happen. 
I flunked the miracles course in seminary. I can't seem to make that happen. It's not that I don't want to see miracles. I really do. Just once. Like just once. I'd like for God to part the sea of traffic in front of me when I'm in a hurry on the Lloyd. Or just once, I'd let me, just let me win the lottery without even having to buy a ticket. Years ago, when my kids were playing middle and high school, uh, middle school and high school sports, if the coach didn't play them as much as I thought that he should have, I would have loved for God to invest the, to infest the coach's house with frogs until the coach repented. I, I would have loved to see that. I want to see miracles. Like I really wish I could do what some pastors say they can do to lay hands on somebody and heal them. I'd give anything for that ability. And you know, if I had that ability. I wouldn't wait on people to come to my church to use it. Like the first place I would go is to the children's floor and local hospitals and then to drive up to Riley Hospital in Indianapolis. That's the first thing I'd do. I'd, but I just don't, I don't have that ability. I wish I did. And here's the thing. When I, when I, when I walk through a Christian bookstore, let's say, or, or maybe listen to Christian radio, or glance at Christian television statements, or even if I'm listening to some Christian people, I get the impression that everyone else is seeing miracles all the time, and I should be too. But I just have to be honest, that's not the case with me. In fact, I think I could make a case that there have been many times in my life when I needed God the most, that He seemed... Well, absent, like he is in this book. And the silence from heaven seemed deafening. And yet, yet, listen to this, yet. When I look back over my life, over the past, I can see God's handprints all over my, all over my life, all over my, my story. Like never in the moment was I aware that God was doing something. The things he was doing were so subtle that it was only with 20-20 hindsight that I could see his hand in what he had done. But see, but see you know, why? Why does he do that? You might be wondering, uh, why doesn't he do something conspicuous so I can know for sure that he's working? Why does he have to be so subtle? That's the problem about his subtlety, isn't it? When he's subtle... It's hard to know on the surface, was that God or was that just circumstances? Like, Did I get that promotion because God put me there or was it merely because I deserved it? I've done good work. I've worked hard. Did my wife and I meet and get married because I romanced her? Because I was suave and debonair? Or because God put us together? Was Esther chosen queen because she was beautiful? It was because God made that happen. It would help, wouldn't it? If, if God would just autograph everything he does so that we could just know. And oh, man, I mean, that would give you so much peace in the moment when you're trying to make a decision, wouldn't it? Like if he would just make that like big and conspicuous, like, you know, should I go left or right, north or south, this job or that job, date this guy or that guy, ask her out, not ask her out, leave, stay, whatever. If God would just do something conspicuous, it would seem like he could save us a lot of anxiety. But here's the thing, though, about the book of Esther. I find myself more impressed by the subtle acts of God 
than the conspicuous acts of God, as crazy as that may sound to you. In fact, the more subtle God gets, the more powerful He seems. And perhaps there's a clue there about why God doesn't work more conspicuous miracles in our lives. Have you ever noticed how subtlety and nuance walk hand in hand with intimacy? Have you ever noticed that? How subtlety and nuance walk hand in hand with intimacy? So like I've been married to my wife for 25 years, uh, 25 and a half years now. And I can tell you just by subtle clues in her body language, whether she's happy or sad or anxious, or if my life is in danger. (laughs) And the way she says something, the nuance with which she says it, says something to me. You wouldn't notice it, right? I mean, you wouldn't pick it up because you haven't been around her for that long. But I, I have. I do pick it up. Because intimacy walks hand in hand with subtlety and nuance. Perhaps God prefers normally to work inconspicuously in the day-to-day events of our lives precisely for that reason. It creates intimacy. We have to look a little harder for signs of His involvement in our lives. And and, And we begin to look for Him in places and ways we would never look for Him otherwise. Anyone with even a faint familiarity with the Bible knows that God can do the big miracle, right? I mean, you don't have to be a you don't have to be a person who has intimacy with God. You don't have to know him very well, know that he can do miracles. I mean, he could dry up the sea in a split second. He could you know that he could strike your arch rival with a nasty case of head lice if he wanted to. That's all very obvious, isn't it? He could do that stuff. But how much more impressed would you be if you learned that God could turn a raging alcoholic's life around through a seemingly ordinary birthday card from a friend? What if he could answer a single woman's prayer for a Christian husband by a seemingly chance encounter at, say, I don't know, a Chris Stapleton concert, whoever? What if he could use the narcissism and the misogyny of a pagan Persian king to put a young woman in a position to do something wonderful, unimaginable for her people? And again, I don't want to give away the storyline, so I'm not going to tell you any more about what she does. But keep coming and and you'll you'll find out. See, the more subtle God gets, the more powerful he seems, and I think also it creates a deeper level of intimacy in us with him when he does things subtly rather than conspicuously, okay? That's the first thing I wanted to say. Here's the second point. Second thing I want you to walk away with this morning. God is rarely conspicuous, but he is always involved in the storyline of your life. Very closely related to the first one, I think. God is rarely conspicuous, but always involved in the storyline of your life. In fact, I believe this is why the book of Esther was written. God wanted to encourage us that just because you can't see him at work in your life in some big conspicuous way doesn't mean he isn't working in your life. He is in reality all over your life. 
And in fact, that's how God normally works in our lives. You, you realize, right, that if you took all of the miracles in the Bible and added them up, I don't know how many, I haven't gone back and counted, I probably should have, but I, I haven't counted. How many miracles do you think are in the Bible? I don't know, let's say 30. 40? I don't know what the number is. Whatever the number is. That's over thousands of years. Now, that's a per-year ratio of, well, I don't know what the ratio is actually, but it's very, very small, right, of miracles per year. Very few miracles, really, in all of human history. Conspicuous miracles. See, God prefers to work inconspicuously in our lives. God's all over the storyline of the book of Esther, but never conspicuously so. In fact, it's only with 20-20 hindsight that you can see his hand. You wouldn't know it if you're reading through the book the first time. Seemingly, God is nowhere in the book, but in retrospect, he's everywhere in the book. But that's the very thing that makes us doubt, too. I said it earlier, you know, was it God? Or was it just that she was beautiful? C.S. Lewis, in, in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, he imagines a conversation. Some of you know this. He imagines a conversation between an old, experienced demon and then an apprentice demon. And the conversation is about how to keep the young man that the apprentice, uh, that the apprentice demon has been assigned to, how to keep him away from any thoughts of or any relationship with God. And so here's what the old demon says. I've put it up on the screen so you can read it. He says, he says to the young apprentice, he says, don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that's one more proof that prayer doesn't work. On the other hand, if it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the natural causes which led up to it, and therefore, it would have happened anyway. Thus, granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. You see what he's saying? Was it natural or was it God? Was it God or was it just circumstance? God or just me making something happen? God or just a narcissistic politician with a predilection for beautiful young virgins choosing a Jewish girl for his queen? Alcoholics Anonymous has this saying, and it goes like this. Coincidence is just God's way of protecting his anonymity. You know, and I said it this way, rarely conspicuous, but always involved in the storyline of your life. And that leads to the third thing that I want you to take away this morning. Eyes of faith see God's providence where others see only circumstance. Eyes of faith see God's providence where others only see circumstance. Now, even as I say that, I want to clarify something. I talk to a lot of people who spend a great deal of time and emotional energy when, they're, when they are in the midst of making an important decision, trying to interpret whether something is a sign from God. Yeah, so I, I talk to a lot of people who spend a great deal of time and emotional energy when they're in the midst of making an important decision. They're trying to, like, interpret whether something is a sign from God. Like, a number of years ago, a friend of mine was trying to make a decision about a job in a different city, and the company he was considering going to work for was located on a street 
And the street was named Jackson Street. And so as he was driving home in, in the city we lived in, as he was driving home one day, he took a shortcut, and he realized that one of the streets that he passed on the way home was named Jackson Street. So he took that as a sign from God to take the job. I took it as just confirmation bias. See, I don't think you can make decisions like that on, based on those kinds of, of things. Because I think when we do that, all we're trying to do is take the risk, the faith, out of the equation. We're trying to inject certainty into our decision-making, and we're trying to use God to get it so that we don't have to use faith when we make decisions. Because you know something, God can use your successes and your failures and everything else. I think it's only in hindsight that you can really see what God was doing in your life. It's, It's looking backwards that eyes of faith can see God's providence where others only see circumstance. See, I want to I say this to you, that for some of us, I include myself in this, our God is, is way too small. You only, you only look for God in the places that you expect Him to be, and, and, and you only look for Him to work in the ways that you have defined for Him to work in. You're only looking for God to work in the most conspicuous of ways. And in reality, He works in ways and places that defy our expectations, and He works through people that you wouldn't ever even imagine. Now, God can work through your failure. He can work through your catastrophe. He can work through what amounts to a death sentence for this young Jewish girl named Esther being ripped from her uncle's arms and thrown into a king's harem. He can also work through your sins. And as I said, He can work through people that you would never expect. A guy I knew years ago once told me that what rescued him from the life that he was living was a drag queen. This guy said that he was far away from God. He was, himself was struggling with homosexuality, and a friend of his was a drag queen. And somehow they got into a conversation, and the drag queen, who had actually grown up in church, said something to the effect of, if, if Christians really believed in Jesus, they'd come and walk in AIDS marches with us instead of standing on the side screaming at us. And this guy suddenly realized that's exactly what Jesus would do. And it was what Jesus did do. He came to us to reach us. And this guy ended up trusting Christ through the words of a drag queen. God works in ways and places and people that we wouldn't even begin to imagine. And so looking backwards, not forwards, looking backwards... Eyes of faith see God's providence where others only saw circumstance. God's always there working in your life, even if you can't see Him or feel Him, even in the uncertainty. And so I think it's, I think, here's the thing, I think it's, I think it's futile to spend a lot of time trying to interpret, is this a sign from God, is that a sign from God? That's, 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 I call that reading tea leaves, who knows? I don't know whether that's a sign. I don't know if that's confirmation bias. I don't know if it's... I don't know. Who knows? But when I look back, I can see God's hand all over my life. I just think it's a waste of time and energy in the present to try to interpret, was was that God? Was it not? I don't... Who knows? And you can't know. 
I just know this. God's all over my life, even though I can't see him, feel him. Maybe he seems absent. All I know is he's been all over my life from the day I was born. He's always there, always working in your life, even if you can't see him or feel him. Even in all of the uncertainty that you feel. Eyes of faith, see God's providence where others only see circumstance. You know, I want to just conclude with this. Do you know why God is never absent from your life? Do you know why He can, he can never, why He always is concerned, why he, he, he doesn't have to ever be absent from your life? You know why that, why that is? Why he never abandons you? It's because he abandoned his son Jesus at the very moment of Jesus' worst crisis. The gospel writers tell us that on the cross, the very last thing that Jesus said was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see, the reason that God never abandons you, the reason that he is never absent from your life, the reason that you never have to worry that he's not working in your life, even if you can't feel it, even if it doesn't seem like he's there, even if your circumstances seem like he's never there, you never have to worry that God has forsaken you because he forsook his son, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. And because of that, he never has to abandon you, never has to forsake you, and never will. And you see, it's not because of the good person you are. It's not because you've done everything right. Not because of how moral you are. Because I'm going to tell you something, no matter how good you may think you are, down deep you have a heart as rotten as Harvey Weinstein's or Woody Allen's or anyone else's. You're a sinner, the Bible says, so far from God that there is no hope for you. No hope at all, unless, unless, unless. On a dark night, in a hick town, God becomes a baby. Born to a couple of no-named teenaged kids. And then grows up to be an obscure carpenter who dies on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for your sin that separates you from a God who hates sin because it is an offense to his right as a king over your life and because it destroys people he loves so much. Unless that happens, there is no hope for you. But if you can bring yourself to believe that, then there is all the hope in heaven and on earth for you. There is hope for forgiveness. There is hope for transformation. There is hope for eternal life. And when I say hope, please understand, I don't mean that in the way that we normally use hope, as in I hope it's 80 degrees and sunshine tomorrow. That's just wishful thinking. When I use the word hope, Christian hope isn't wishful thinking. It is rock-solid assurance in the name of Jesus Christ. If you can bring yourself to believe that Jesus died on a cross for your sins, that God became man and died on a cross for your sins, then there is hope for you. The more subtle God gets, the more powerful He seems. He's rarely, rarely conspicuous, but... Rest assured, he's all over the details of your life. 
And eyes of faith see God's providence looking backwards where other people just see circumstance. Would you bow with me for prayer? Would you just take a moment and would you look back over the course of your life? Just scan quickly over the course of your life. Would you just acknowledge in this moment the places where God, it's evident that God's hand was was on your life. You didn't know it. You didn't see it. You didn't feel it. But he was there. He was all over your life then. And would you just, on, in the assurance of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, if you have believed in him, would you just acknowledge now that because of what Jesus did on the cross, God will never in the future, he will never abandon you, never forsake you, never ever. No matter what you feel, he will never abandon you and never forsake you. Would you just praise him for that now? And if you have never believed that God could love you so much that he would die on a Roman cross for you in the person of Jesus Christ, would you just in this moment, would you, would you just acknowledge to him that no matter how bad you've been or no matter how moral you've been, would you just acknowledge you're a sinner? And would you just Tell the Lord Jesus, just say, I believe, I need a Savior, and I believe you are that Savior. That there is no other way for me, no other hope for me apart from you. There's no other name under heaven by which I could have been saved. Would you just paraphrase that and say that to the Lord? And the Bible says at the moment that you say that, that there is a profound transformation that happens in you. And that you, for the first time, become alive because God places his very spirit, the very life of Jesus, inside of you. And your soul becomes alive. Our hope is in you, Lord Jesus Christ, and in the power of your name. It's not in us. It's not in our behavior. It's not in our morality. not in our goodness. Our hope is in you and you alone. Because even the best of us in the room have hearts that are desperately wicked on our own. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you went through all that you went through, the worst being the abandonment that you felt on the cross. You did that for us so that we would never have to be abandoned by God and that we wouldn't experience an eternity with no God present. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you suffered through that for us. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray to you. Amen.